If God will be gracious to us, then we will leave from here a little bit less like Charles Darwin than when we came. Many Christians are, sad to say, far more uh, like Charles Darwin than uh, they know or would like to admit. I think all of us can fall into the uh, Darwinian trap. See, near the end of his life, after a lifetime of scientific studies, Darwin wrote in his autobiography that the things that had once given him so much pleasure in life, like art and poetry and music and beautiful scenery, had, in his words, become intolerably dull to the point of nauseating him. And that is not something that he was saying arrogantly, he was mourning the loss of his pleasure in, in the world, in art, music, poetry, in, in beautiful landscapes and so on. He mourned the loss of that pleasure. Now, it's not surprising to us, with hindsight, that he lost his wonder, that he ceased to marvel at things. Because after a lifetime of espousing his evolutionary theory, what would happen to a person? If everything is merely natural, if everything is material, impersonal, if creation is just nature grinding on, and there is no higher purpose, telos, if there's no higher meaning, what would happen to your affection for it? What would happen to your response to it? What happened to him is that it had become all intolerably dull. I think that many Christians, when they take their eyes off Jesus, when they stop meditating on the word that reveals Jesus to him, they lose their sense of wonder at the love of God in Christ. Almost like in the sense of Darwin, I've seen all there is to see. I've heard all that there is to hear. And the glory of the love of God in Jesus is lost on them. And in one sense, we should be like Darwin. We should not be satisfied with that. We should mourn that when that happens to us. And we should do everything we can, first of all, by prayer. Second, by seeking the face of God in His Word, in His Son, Jesus, the, the written word and the living word, to get back to the place where we marvel at the love of God in Christ. Let me say that the love of God for people is not something that you can slap on a bumper sticker without it being reductionist, without it being one-dimensional. I believe, like you all believe, that God loves all people. But the love of God is not just like an effervescent glow going out from Him and absorbing all people equally. We talked a little while ago, and I don't have time to rehearse this with you, about the different dimensions and ways in which God loves, and we, we talked about five of them. But one of them is God's personal covenant love for those that he has chosen and called to himself in Christ. His covenant love for the innumerable elect 
who are from every nation, from all peoples, nations, tribes, languages. The love of God goes out in that covenant way in Christ. That steadfast love. It's that everlasting love. And I want you to realize that love more and more and more. If you come to the point where you think that you have seen it all and heard it all, you just don't know. Paul, in Ephesians 3, said that he was praying that we would know the love of God in Christ which passes knowledge. That's not something that you can just slap on a bumper sticker. It's not anything that's just impersonal. So last week, we were looking at the nature of the eternal Spirit in the Son and Son in the Father relationship. The nature of that eternal relationship in the triune God. And what it means that the Son abides in the Father and the Spirit abides in the Son. And how John draws a direct parallel to our relationship with God. And he basically says, essentially, that as the Son abides in the Father, so we abide in the Father. As God abides in the Son, so God abides in us. And we noticed that very deliberate word choice of abiding across John's works, across his written works in the New Testament Scriptures. Beginning with the, the fourth Gospel of John in the 23rd book, First John, you also see it in the second there's a very deliberate word choice so that we could understand. We could understand our abiding with God by Jesus abiding with God. And God's abiding in me and you like Jesus, like God abides in His Son, Jesus. And I said to you, that this is, this is beyond all of our instincts. Our, our instinct, if we're thinking, if, if we're thinking of who God is in His holiness and purity, His untouchability, unreachability. There is no God beside Him. From everlasting to everlasting, He is God. We're thinking in God of God in those terms and thinking of ourselves in the terms that the Bible describes that we are ruined, guilty sinners. The instinct is that fellowship of the triune God is closed off to me. Relationship with God, like Jesus has relationship with the Father, is closed off to me, the guilty sinner. So when John starts saying, you know, okay, God abides in the Son, the, the Spirit abides in the Son. Okay, we get that. But when John starts saying, God ab abides, using the exact same language, God abides in you, and you in Him, I mean... That just sends those who understand it in some way, understand it in some way, it sends them to the floor in worship. 
sends gratitude through the roof that God would love us in this fashion. Now, this leads me to, you, you know, I, I can't even tell you. As I've gone through this and, and seen these connections in John's writings, this whole abiding language, how many times I've thought, can I say that? I feel like I'm, I'm towing the line of orthodoxy here. And I don't want to step past the line. This is, I think, one half of our faith problem. That we fail to believe how good things are for us now in Jesus Christ, God's Son. The other half of the faith problem is realizing how bad things are for us without Jesus. But I'm talking about this struggle. Are things this good for me now in Jesus, in my relationship with God? And so I've struggled. You know, can I actually say this or am I going to go too far? I'm waiting for some angelic authority to come strolling through the the back door and say, all right, (laughs) you've just crossed the line. You're out of here. Because this is... This is more glorious than every instinct that we have. Let's get into this passage. 1 John chapter 4, we're going to be, I wanted to get through the end of the chapter. I told you last week that, Lord willing, we would. Well, I guess, Lord willing, we won't. I'm going to, I'm going to just take up in verse 13. I'm going to read through the first several verses quickly because we've been over them. We're we're concentrating on verse 17. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So in those four verses, three times, John says, God abides in us, and we abide in God. I would say that that would be the theme of those four verses. By this, he says in verse 17, referring back to that abiding in God and God in us, by this mutual abiding is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Okay, I want to begin in our text today with three statements, which I'm going to try to say slowly enough that you can be thinking about them and processing them as I say them. Number one, we abide in God and God abides in us. That's the theme of verses 13 to 16. By this mutual abiding, 
The love of God is perfected in us. That's number two. God perfects his love in us. Which means that his goal for his love in us is brought to completion. That word perfected, I used the word earlier actually when I said that Charles Darwin didn't see any purpose or telos in the world anymore. That's the word that is being used here of perfected. God has a goal. God has a, a plan and a purpose for his love within us. By our abiding in God and God abiding on us, that love, that goal for his love is being fulfilled, brought to completion. Now the goal, this is number three, the goal for his love in you is realized when we abide in him and he in us, because when we abide in God and he in us, then we are like Christ his son. That is, as he says at the end of verse 17, as he is, so also are we in this world. Now let me go over those three statements again, try to make them a little more concise. Number one, God abides in us and we in him. By this mutual abiding, number two, God's love is perfected in us. Because, number three, as we abide in God and God in us, we are being made like his son, Jesus. And that is God's goal for his people. Okay? Now, we need to understand what this abiding in God and God in us means. And I, I want to go deeper into it because two ways in which we abide in God are two ways in which we are like Jesus. Okay, I, I think this will help. I know just talking in these abstract terms can be confusing. Jesus knew that too, and that's why he drew up this great word picture for us, this metaphor in John 15. He described the abiding that we have in him and he in us as the vine and the branches. He said, I am the vine and you are the branches. He said, abide in me. So when God drew us in and joined us to his son, the Lord Jesus, by his grace through faith, it was a free gift we received with the empty hands of faith, he grafted us into his son. We're, we're human branches. We don't belong on the heavenly vine. But God in his grace grafted us in. And that's what Paul calls being in Christ. It's our union with Jesus. And so this is our the beginning of our abiding in God and God in us when God joins us to his son. When we are in Jesus, united to him like a branch grafted into the vine. That's the beginning of our abiding in God and God in us. Now this union that we have with Jesus will not change. And we were, we were singing about that in our first couple songs, the guarantee we have of the hope of glory. We're looking forward to the promised land where our possessions lie, and we say, I am bound. I am bound for the promised land. And nothing can change that. That union with Jesus cannot be broken. And so, in a sense, this union with Jesus is static, a static relationship, meaning it's not going anywhere, 
That is, it's not going to change, it's not going to be lost, it's not going to be broken. So John can say, we abide in God, and God abides in us. Truth. That's a fact. But in another sense, this abiding is very dynamic. It is a living, breathing relationship. And so, in another sense, it does change. Our union with Jesus does not, but our communion with Jesus does change. And so I told you, we need to understand that there are two senses of abiding in God and God in us because there are two ways in which we're being made like Jesus, right? As Jesus is united to the Father and God united to His Son, He is in the Father and the Father in Him. That's His union. So also He continually draws from the Father, depends on the Father, walks with the Father. All that He does is what the Father gives Him to do. All He says is what the Father gives Him to say. It's a walking, flourishing relationship of trust and obedience on the Son's part to the Father. So there is union with God and communion with God. And so like a branch and a vine, we're we're drawing from the vine. Jesus, we're drawing from His life and His power and therefore producing fruit. Our union with Jesus can't change, but sometimes our communion with Jesus fluctuates. We know that. We struggle. We even enter into seasons of sin, callousness, Our hearts can still grow hard. And so when that communion wavers, what happens? Jesus says, my father, the vine dresser, must prune you. And that's when we talk about discipline. So we can return to communion with God, continue drawing from Him, and produce fruit. And over the long haul of the Christian life, that communion with God grows and grows. We flourish and produce more and more fruit. This is a growing relationship that we have with God. So in one sense, it it doesn't change because it's fixed and immovable and it can't be broken. But in another sense, this ongoing communion and fellowship with God, well, we know, we believe as the Word says, it's going to grow even if there are lapses in it. So we abide in God and God abides in us. And by this mutual abiding, God brings His love to completion in us because, as it says in verse 17, because as He is, so are we in this world. I I hope that your translation doesn't say too much that's different from that. I'm going off the English Standard Version ESV. I know that there are different ones out there. But I hope that your version reads essentially, because as He, that is Jesus, is, so are we in this world. Now, I wanted to get past verse 21, but when I locked in on this last statement, 17C, we could call it. There's three statements in verse 17, A, B, C. This is 17C. When I locked in on this, I... Forget it. This This is too awesome. There are certain statements in the Bible that just have this incredible shock value. 
they're, they're not included in the Bible because they have shock value. They're included in the Bible because they're true. But that doesn't change the fact that they're just incredibly shocking. And that's this is one of those statements. As He is, so are we in this world. And so I want to take this statement and divide it up into its three natural parts, turn it over and over with you and look at it closely to realize one of these ways that God has loved us so that we would stop thinking we know it all already. We've heard it all already. As He is. Now think back to John's Gospel. If you're not familiar with John's Gospel, soon, sometime soon, make it a plan to read through John's Gospel in your own private devotional time. Meditate on it. Think of Jesus and how He relates to the Father in John's Gospel, where He just overflows in His affection for the Father. from, From the very beginning to the end of John's Gospel, He is talking about His relationship with God. And it's in terms of great affection. And so, again, it's being described as God the Father abides in Him. And He abides in the Father. We think this is not necessarily uh, in John's Gospel, but think of the Father pronouncing, thundering over His Son. This is my beloved Son. And think of Jesus toward the end of John's Gospel, just before His arrest, crying out to the Father in anticipation, I am coming to you. And He says to Mary Magdalene, don't hold on to me because I'm not yet returned to the Father and I'm going to Him. And He's just just overflowing. That's not, He's not saying that in any kind of monotone, lecture, classroom kind of way. Just, you know, the, here's a propositional truth for you to consider. I am going to the Father. His heart is bursting with affection for His Father. As He faces His death, He knows that the cross is the wide-open gate to returning to God. And that's that prize ahead of Him. That's the joy by which He endures the shame of the cross. He is returning to the Father. So you think of Jesus as He is in relationship with God. John says... As He is, so are we. Before the Father of glory, we have the status of the Son. We are just as much in the family as Jesus is in the family. We are as just as righteous as Jesus is righteous. And I'm not talking practically, I'm talking positionally. That's our status, our record before God, just as righteous as Jesus is righteous. We're just as much in, in certain senses, as Jesus is in, as He is. So are we. How does this not belittle Jesus? To say this, that in so many senses where we've been brought to the same level. Just as in, just as belonging, just as acceptable, just as righteous. How does that not belittle Jesus? Because though abiding in God, as He abides and seated with Him, He is yet eternally God, and we are not. 
So I've put it this way before. We don't ever share in His Godhead. We share in His good. He is yet eternally God. We will never be deified. Let's talk about the differences because we, we must see Jesus in glory as He deserves, which is far above us. You see, Jesus is united to the Father in His being. We are united to God by abiding. He is one with the Father because Jesus has the Father's essence. We are one with the Father because we have the Father's presence. Jesus is ever the giver in this relationship, and we are ever the beneficiaries of this relationship. He has life in Himself, and we are always ever needy. He will always be the vine, giving us life, and we will always be the branches that draw from Him. He shares His sonship with us. We don't share ours with Him. He shares glory with us. We don't share whatever glory we have with Him. He shares His place with us. We don't share ours with Him. He shares His righteousness with us. We don't share whatever righteousness we have with Him. We have nothing to bring in this relationship. Our hands are empty. We receive everything unmerited, undeserved, by grace through faith alone. So do you see the difference? Even as we say that we are on the same level in so many senses, yet in so many others we are not, because the receiver is always beholden to the giver. We are beggars who have been made kings and queens in the kingdom of God and His Christ. That's the difference. He is the eternal King who shares His throne. How does it not belittle Jesus that in certain senses we've been brought to the same level? Because Jesus Himself bought this for us. If He had not shed His blood upon the cross, we would never have this relationship. How does it not belittle Jesus that we're on the same level? Because He is the life source of, the, of this relationship. If He was not the vine and we grafted into Him as branches, we would never have this. Apart from Jesus, we don't have any standing with God. In Him, we are as He is. So this doesn't belittle Jesus. It attributes all of the glory to Jesus. We have all of this blessing. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places by our union with Christ. If we were not brought to Him and grafted in, we would never have any of this. We would only know the judgment of God upon our heads. So, again, I can't tell you how many times I've, I've, I've really wrestled with this. Sometimes it drives me about crazy. Can I say this? Can I, actually, can I go this far? But it is this good. Because we've been brought into union with Christ. It is this good for us in Jesus because the Word says it is. Now, the third part of this, okay? So, as He is, you think of Jesus in His relationship with God, so are we in this world. We often make the distinction between the blessings that we already have in Jesus and the future glory that is yet to come. So we talk about already and not yet, that, that 
tension in the New Testament. We have so much goodness in Christ already, right here in this life, but there's so much more to come. And, and so we talk about, uh, in that song, I am bound for the promised land, looking forward to Canaan, where my possessions lie. And yet we know, as we also sang in uh, the song, Come Praise and Glorify this morning, but the Spirit being the guarantee of our hope, we have already received so much of our inheritance in the Holy Spirit because He has brought to us abiding with God. He has brought to us fellowship with God. We have already in Christ justification and so on. So many blessings. Think about this. Again, say it slow. As He is, so are you in this world. In this life, in this broken, confused, chaotic world, as He is, so are you. In this sin-consumed, sin-sick world, as He is, so are you. In a world that's full of so much upheaval, political, economic, moral, violent upheaval as He is, so are you. Right now, in this life, as He is, so are you. It's that good in Christ. The Bible says, in Him we are righteous, in Him alive, in Him in with God, we're seated with Him in the heavenly places in Him. And so we rejoice in hope of the glory of God from a position of standing in so much grace already. Judgment is coming to this world. But as He is, so are we. And that's it. That's where I'm going to stop. As far as my notes go. So you are not your past. As He is, so are you in this world. You are not last week's fall. As He is, so are you. You are not this week's stumble. Because as He is, so are you in this world. Your heart, your sins, your habits, your mistakes, your past, none of that, this world doesn't define who you are. Because as He is, so are you in this world. Now tell me, that doesn't change your perspective just on yourself. You can't get to the bottom of the love of God. You can't climb the heights and find the very peak You cannot measure this love. 
You can't just slap it on a bumper sticker without reducing it to something that's cheap. This is how God has loved you. As His Son is, so are you already in this world. Let's pray. Father, this word, is it too good to be true? I know, Father, that there is no way that a fallen man could have made this stuff stuff up. We could never have imagined such goodness that we have in Christ in this life already to be truly as he is in relationship with you. Father, I pray that that statement would just would penetrate every heart, no matter how thick the calluses, spiritual calluses are on our hearts. I pray that this truth would penetrate. Whether somebody needs new convincing of your great love in Jesus or doubts, your love, or or whatever, I pray, Father, that these truths would penetrate and would sink in deep. We praise you, because as he is, so are we in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.